I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, if you have that handy, and then also uh, the sermon notes that you'll find in your bulletin, I am confident, will be a help to you as well. Grateful that we can come once again to this third visit to the book of Hebrews. I am grateful because of its content. We live in a time when My goodness sakes, all of us are kind of hanging on and watching and wondering what's going to happen on all kinds of fronts and uh, wondering what to believe and who to believe. And um, my goodness sakes, uh, weary. Many, many people weary. Uh, Not only of words coming at them, but it seems like the, the intense struggle to know who to listen to. Well, for starters... Listen to God, the one who said, uh, let there be light, the one who in the beginning made it all. Listen to him. And as the message of Hebrews very clearly presents, our focus is to be Christ. And so we uh, joyfully get to come here again today. Today, uh, of course, you find on your sermon notes the uh, normal section of review. I'll not go over all of that. But if you are joining us perhaps for the first time, you'll want to review some of, those, some of those details. There's always a section on your sermon notes about today's text, and uh, I'll just look with you for a moment at that. Our, our main text today will be Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, which is the first of five major warning sections. And so may I just say, you know, uh, buckle your seatbelt. Um, some of these warning sections make you sit up and pay attention and say, are you talking to me? So, so yes would be the answer. Uh, in this case, and in all the others, they are talking to us. So there's, there are warnings. And the, the, the phrases that are used here, and again, as we'll see in weeks ahead, in the other warning sections, <clears throat> they are robust. And if they don't put a little fear of God in you, it's because you're not listening. So be prepared for that. A warning text is a warning text. And if you expect it to only give you kind of a feeling of warmth and coziness, like a nice warm blanket and a cup of coffee. Um, well, you'll get that later, but there's, a, there's, a, there's something to pay attention to here, so listen. Now, <clears throat> to help us get there to that, that uh, text this morning, I want to reference um, another book that I have um, just been looking at here recently. It's called Mission Drift written by Peter Greer and Chris Horst. It was published in 2015. Both these guys, mission executives, looking at their organization and thinking deeply about it. And they, be, they became convinced that organizations, for starters, need to pay attention because over the process of time, they tend to shift, or their title of their book, Mission Drift. The beginning of their book gives you uh, kind of the their warning, if you will, uh, they start like this. Without careful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. It's that simple. It will happen. Slowly, silently, and with little fanfare, organizations routinely drift from their original purpose, and most will never return to their original intent. It has happened repeatedly throughout history, and it was happening to us. And then he tells a story that brought that to to their mind. Part of their telling of the story of organizational mission drift uh, in the book here, they reference the the stories that some of you are familiar with about some of the 
major historic colleges in our country. You know, Harvard, uh, Yale, uh, Rutgers, College of William and Mary, and so on. Many of these uh, formed years ago, Harvard the oldest institution, with, with clear gospel intent. Uh, in one of the cases, don't remember which one, the first 10 presidents, ministers. Uh, clear statements of faith in each case. And, and then over the years, organizational shift, where in most of those cases, a good evangelical would probably not make it on faculty. Well, of course, Greer and um, Horst are not suggesting that change is bad. They're not suggesting that updates to the times are all bad. They're not saying you shouldn't switch the carpet or the music. That's not it. It's talking about the mission, that core thing uh, that uh, that an organization's about. But I want you to get the, the shift here. It's not only organizations that drift. People drift. Churches drift. And this morning we want to think more about the personal drift and perhaps a church concern as well that we need to think about as opposed to organizations in general. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, There are a number of things we're going to look at and read that uh, I hope you'll slow down and think deeply about. So we want to pray that God would help us and we'll come to his word. Our Father, in these times, how good it is that we can open the Word of God. We find ourselves, all of us, listening to a lot of words these days, sometimes hard, finding it hard to know what to believe, drinking from different streams of news and wondering, is anybody, is anybody really telling me what is? And our Father, how good to come to the Word of God and know that you will tell us what is and is not. And I pray that the Spirit of God would would use the Word of God in each of us in a way that is is yours to do, O God. All of us, we come to you now, those present in the room, those listening uh, in the other room and and listening uh, elsewhere. We come to you and we say, Father, you know where my heart is. You know my struggles, even my struggles with faith. And I pray that you would help us now in the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned in that little um, section called today's text that God's word is never given just for your information. It is always given for our transformation, always given for a change of heart. And uh, we want to look at that today. So I want to read the two texts that are mentioned here. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and then Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And I'll pause in the middle for a few comments because to begin chapter 2 without vividly remembering chapter 1 will we'll cause the, the second chapter to lose some of its punch, okay? So uh, two weeks ago, we began Hebrews by reading these words, God's word, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then last week we picked up then at verse 5, verses 5 through 14, which explain verse 4, as you'll recall. What do you mean, we would say to the writer, that Christ is superior to angels? And he tells us in some detail, and again, we looked through uh, those verses last week, uh, but, but they, they draw together with power the lifting up of Christ in his majesty, in his deity, as creator, as eternal God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we notice as we read chapter 1, that there is, there is nothing here that we are asked to do. In all of chapter 1, there is not a therefore yet. There is not a do this or stop that. Chapter 1 is building a foundation. But in chapter 2, verse 1, that changes. And so I read then with you chapter 2, 1 through 4. And here is the first call to do something with what we just heard. So the writer says, therefore... You see the connection? Therefore, because of Christ, because of who he is and his majesty and his deity and his creation, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And there we will stop. Verses 1 through 4 then, if you look at your study notes, you see I have three different areas of comment and I am going out of textual order to do that, and I, I, I think it will make sense as we move ahead. So verse 1 and 3a, I'm calling that the call, the warning, and the process. And then verse 2, a lesson from history. And then the second half of 3 and into verse 4, reasons to believe and reasons for judgment. So that's the, that's the pattern we will follow here then We've mentioned the first word in chapter 2, that therefore is a strong connection to what all that precedes. And it's intended to make you uh, pull it to mind, remember what has just been said. The God who spoke in the past, verse 1, has now spoken clearly and ultimately through his son. So, therefore, sit up and pay attention, people. That's the idea. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay close attention. In other words, God has spoken in the past in all kinds of ways, the prophets and so on, as we saw earlier. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. For goodness sakes, listen to him. Listen to Christ. Now, the warning in verse 3. You might say, well, is it a warning? What do you mean? It looks like a question to me. Oh, there's a warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The warning, if I were to rephrase it, is this. If you neglect so great a salvation, you do so at great peril. Certainty of judgment from God. And 
you know what? There are, there, well, I realize messages about judgment fall under the category of, you know, hellfire and brimstone from yesteryear, and that there is a much greater desire in our day uh, for people to hear about a God who only gives hugs. And the God of the Bible does give hugs. He calls us by his name. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. He longs for us to come. He knows us, loves us profoundly. And at the very same time, the God who is holy and loving and righteous is a God who judges. And I, I fear that that part of what God is like is, is, is not thought about much today. It's out of step with popular culture. A God who judges? Oh, my goodness sakes. What is all of that? Well, it's in the text. And, and let me just say, um, the, 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 the righteous judgment of God is core to who he is. And if you were to dispense with the righteous judgment of God, you, you wouldn't have the God of the Bible, the God who loves and redeems. There'd be no purpose for a God who redeems if there's no judgment. Redeems you from what? So this is a critical part of biblical truth, and we need to pay attention clearly. So verse 3 then, to think about this for a moment, this warning, how shall we escape? Escape what? Well, God's judgment. And I I want you to look with me at the, the things that I have articulated on your study notes. Please hear this. You can sit all day or for years under the sound of the gospel, but if you do not respond in faith, that is, trusting Christ and him alone as your savior from sin, there is no other way for you to reach God's heaven. Do you hear this? Uh, this, this text is one of many that make that abundantly clear. How shall we escape if we neglect God's plan of salvation? Do you have any other way? The writer is suggesting there is none. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. I'm giving you several verses here, and I do want to look up the text in, in 2 Thessalonians. I want you to see this. John 14, 6, of course, the words of Jesus in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, similarly, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the message of the apostles. But I want to go to the text in in Thessalonians then. I'm going to have us read uh, 2 Thessalonians, and then I want to reference one other verse in 1 Thessalonians. But I want us to see the certainty of judgment for those who reject God's offer of salvation. And it does, it is about that, those who reject God's offer of salvation. Now in 2 Thessalonians 1 then, this, the, the, the portion we'll read beginning at verse 3 uh, embraces those who have trusted Christ as their Savior and the blessing that is theirs because they have trusted Jesus, not of their own works, but because of the mercy of God. But, but here then, the other side as well. So 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writing this says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now watch this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Isn't that interesting, to be marveled at? But the statements of judgment are clear. Those who trust Christ as Savior, forgiven for their sin, welcomed into the family of God, eternally uh, secure. And those who say, I hear it, don't want it. A certainty of judgment. And the Bible pulls no punches on this. If you want to flip back just a couple pages to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, this is one of the New Testament texts on the day of the Lord, which is a larger topic than we'll address today. But I'm, I'm really after one verse, and from that one verse, one phrase, okay? So 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, uh, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you see this? Now, what is so interesting to me in studying that text is that uh, all of us who passed eighth grade English learn certain rules about the English language, like you, uh, you don't use no double negatives or you'll be in trouble with the teacher. Uh, that rule of English does not cross into other languages. In the language in which the New Testament was written, uh, the New Testament Greek, uh, a double negative is used for emphasis. You don't use it all the time. But it's a pulpit pounder. It's a shout. It's a finger in your face. And so chapter 5, verse 3, that last phrase, they will not escape, uses a double negative. It could have had an exclamation mark or something. But it says, and no, if you will, no, they will not escape. They will not not escape. It's underscoring. It's putting it in bold. There is salvation no other place than in Christ. There is no escape for those who have rejected Christ. Okay. Do you want to just let that sit for a moment? I mean, that's the clear message of the Bible, and that's the message of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. That's the warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I love that phrase. It was used as the title of a book by Dr. Charles Ryrie back in the late 80s. So great salvation, talking about what it means to be a child of God. Now, at the same time, under the same section on your notes, the call, the therefore, pay attention, the warning, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The process by which often people neglect, and I look here back to verse 1, the writer says, lest we, we drift, pay closer, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. 
And in particular here, by that phrase, drifting away, the writer does something that is similar to other warning texts, okay? That is, he's addressing them not to people primarily who have never heard the gospel, but please get this. He's addressing his warnings largely to people who have heard the gospel. They've heard it, and they've heard it as you are today. They've been to a Billy Graham crusade. They've read the book. They got the T-shirt. Somebody told them about Christ. They heard it. And then somehow through the process of time, having never really embraced Christ, they drift, and they drift, and they drift. And he says, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest, lest this be true of you, lest we drift. So there's this warning is for those who have heard the gospel. It is. I would be unfaithful in preaching to not point that out. It's not aimed at those who've never heard. It's aimed at those who have. Now, the process of drifting, if you think about this, that it draws to mind the terms that are used in the text, draw to mind a nautical theme, boats. If you're a boat in a boat on a lake, um, you might get by sitting there for a while without an anchor. But if you're a, a boat on the ocean or you uh, happen to uh, go down a river or out here in the sound, if you've ever been on a boat out here in the sound, you know, all you have to do to drift with the tide is, well, nothing. Sit there. Uh, I myself have done this. Uh, Having kayaked a bit uh, out here in the sound around Anderson Island and some of these others, depending on the rise and the fall of the tide, high tide, low, is it a real high, et cetera, et cetera, and what time of day and how wide the passage is and are you down by the bridge and a lot of, of interesting things like that, the tide can really get moving. I remember a time not too long ago, I was out with a friend in the sound here and the tide was moving and we're going against the tide and um, I remember noticing, you know, we're working it, working it hard, you know. And you look over there and go, that, there's that tree. And you go for a while, look over there and go, that looks like the same tree. <laughs> we, what's going on? Well, the problem, of course, comes if you work up a little bit of a sweat and you say, oh, I'm going to put the paddle down and just rest for a minute. Right? You're gone the other way. I mean, you're thir- you just lost the last 30 minutes of effort because you're, you're, you're way with the tide that direction. You drift. You you drift. Boats drift. People drift. You might drift. Now, about the only way to know if you drift is to look at a fixed point, isn't it? You better have that tree, some reference point. Because if you're sitting out there in the water and you just rest, you don't even notice that you're going the wrong direction. But sometimes people who are raised in faith... Uh, drift. They might do well for a while, hear the gospel, teach Sunday school class, hang out, you know, and drift. 20 years later, 30 years later, kind of wake up and say, man, how did I get here? How did I ever get here? I'm not making this up. This is reality. This is life. Some of you know exactly what I mean. Because you've had that deja vu moment where you look around and go, oh my goodness, 
I hardly recognize where I'm at. How did this happen? I suggest here on your study notes that part of your, your own study, I just reference it here in passing due to the passage of time in the morning, but for your, your community groups, you might do well to study the parable of the sower because I'll give you the one, one of the references there for it, Mark 4, the parable of the sower and four different types of seed, one of which bears good uh, fruit, so to speak, and produces a harvest. But what happened to the others? You might take a look at that. What happened to the others? Um, why didn't they produce? Why didn't they, why didn't they bear good, good fruit? So um, different things come along. <clears throat> Busyness, inattention, the evil one. All kinds of things come along. <clears throat> Excuse me. So just a moment here. Excuse me. So the the call, <clears throat> boy, excuse me. So the call then is that therefore, the call is to pay attention. The warning is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the process by which many people uh, think they're going to, uh, well, they're not paying attention. They drift. They drift. The writer has in mind those who hear the gospel maybe respond in some external way, and then wander away from faith. Now. I want to go to verse 2, that next section there in your notes. <clears throat> verse 2, I entitled it, Learn from History. And I use a little understatement here. Ignoring God's message is a bad idea. Yeah, no kidding, it's a bad idea. A very bad idea, ignoring God's message. So verse 2, the writer is linking, of course, verses 1 and 3. And I took it out of order to, to allow those other three to be together. The message declared by angels is a reference to the Mosaic Law. There are some vague references, really, and I, I think they are that in the Old Testament, to how the giving of the Mosaic Law was attended by angels. And so that's what this reference is about, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. It was true. And every transgression or disobedience received a just distrib- uh, retribution. Yet transgression and obedience there, uh, of course, at both acts of willful sin and sins of neglect, things you knew you should do, uh, and then other things you just kind of ignored. Transgression, disobedience, those two terms that are used have a little different nuance to them. You put your foot across the line, you knew it. And other things you just, by neglect, you didn't do them. You know? The writer speaks of a just recompense, just retribution, rewards for obedience, penalties for disobedience, Old Testament. You see that all over the place. And of course, the writer is saying this. Just like in chapter one, Christ superior to the Old Covenant, he's making an Old Covenant reference here. And it's, if you like to follow such things, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, different way of arguing things from the lesser to the greater. If, if there were penalties for people who ignored God's law in the Old Testament, for goodness sakes, How much greater do you think the penalty would be? How much greater offense it would be for God when he sends his son and you ignored him? So if there were penalties for Old Testament transgressions, my goodness sakes, how can you think you would get away with ignoring the son of God? Now, in the second half of verse 3 and into verse 4, then you have what I've called reasons to believe and reasons for judgment. They are both. And there are, they come really layered as three. 
So the writer, then talking about this great salvation, says it was declared at first by the Lord. So it's speaking of Christ, who came and called people to repentance, announced the work that he was to do on the cross, and called people to follow him. It was announced first by the Lord, then secondly, attested to by those who heard. I call them New Testament apostles and other eyewitnesses. It was attested by those who heard. And uh, by the way, uh, some of you like to think through details of the text. Uh, I mentioned two weeks ago in the introduction to our study here in Hebrews, uh, a question of authorship. And uh, was it the Apostle Paul? Was it somebody else? There are those who lean toward Apostle Paul and those who lean elsewhere. This verse is in the category of supporting somebody else as the author. It's not definitive, but it kind of leans there because the the, the phrase is about others who heard. Well, the Apostle Paul, who saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, might have been more likely to say it was attested by, to us by uh, those of us who heard or saw. It might be a first person there. But here he keeps it third person, those other people who first heard. So the writer then perhaps distancing uh, himself or herself from that. Hard to say. Uh, and immaterial to, our, to the main argument of the text. Uh, The main point here for us is that New Testament apostles and others who saw the resurrected Christ spoke about the truth of the gospel. You'll remember with me 1 Corinthians 15, where the apostle Paul, in that case, is giving a list of those who saw the resurrected Christ, and he lists a whole number, the apostles and so on. He lists himself. He also mentions 500 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ at one time, and he says of them, some of whom remain until this time, at the time of writing. And his point is, as he wrote 1 Corinthians, there's, there are all kinds of people who saw the resurrected Christ. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Walk down the road and knock on the door of Mr. or Miss so-and-so's house and ask them, did you really see the resurrected Christ? They'll tell you. Maybe you don't believe me, but ask them. That was the point in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think there's an an allusion or reference here to the same thing. It was attested to us by those who heard. And of course, I give you some references here because the resurrection of Christ was a regular part of the gospel message. As you look through the book of Acts, I gave you just a couple from the book of Acts. You look it up and you find a lot more than that. They kept speaking about Christ having risen from the dead as, as, as great evidence for his deity and his offering being accepted by the Father. He was raised from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. Romans 1, 4, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So eyewitnesses. And then third, interesting there in verse 4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And of course, I am not going to walk into the whole issue today uh, of uh, signs and wonders and various miracles. I have strong feelings about those things in terms of their uh, placement in the New Testament and in history. But very clearly, the point in this text is that in New Testament times, there were signs and wonders and miracles done by the apostles. That's irrefutable. Uh, And the point was to, to point to the accuracy of the gospel message and the truth of Christ risen from the dead. I give you just one reference there, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul calls these things, 
the signs of a true apostle. He says the signs of a true apostle were done among you in signs and wonders and all kinds of things. He calls them the signs of a true apostle in that text. And their intent was to affirm the message. Now, all of this circles back to verse 3. And friends, hear it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if you think you're going to heaven any other way than through Christ? You are aware, I'm sure, that in today's uh, well cultural um, setting, to say Christ and Christ alone, are, that, that, those are fighting words. To say Christ is one possible method to heaven, people can embrace that. But to say with Scripture, Christ and Christ alone, that's to draw a line in the sand many would not like to draw, but it's biblically accurate. Christ and Christ alone. And I want to say today to all of us in the room, those elsewhere, listening another time in another place, my goodness sakes, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? So the call of Scripture is not to neglect that great salvation, but to, but to trust Christ as your Savior from sin and to be what the Bible calls born again, into the family of God, to use the terms of Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. John chapter 3. How, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? What exactly is your plan? And by the way, there is no other. Now, the answer then to my question, or implied question, the worst mistake you could ever make, what is it? Well, it's to neglect the gospel by failing to trust Christ as your savior from sin. Living faith. And I would hasten to say, and we'll see it at other times in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews calls us not only to a moment, a moment of, of salvation, but to what I'm going to call living faith that is a moment of salvation that is born out in life choices. More on that in the weeks ahead. Uh, the big word P, perseverance. All right? So what does it mean to persevere in faith? We'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead. I want to point your direction there to the section called Responding to God's Word. There are some things to think about there. And then, of course, the other section called Community Group Notes. If you're in a community group, you'll be talking about some of those things this week. If you're not, you might do well to consider those as points of discussion for yourself in your home or even just to read and think about. But I, I, want, I want to pull it together like this. This is an interesting week coming up for all of us. A lot's going to happen in the country of historical import. And whatever uh, your thoughts on all of that, and we have them, don't we? We have thoughts. Uh, we listen to all kinds of different things. Many of us listen to different streams. And as you heard me say back during the other, the other political season, uh, we don't all hear and listen to and believe the same things on all of this. Whatever voice you listen to, hear the, hear the word of the living God, okay? And draw your whatever encouragement you have from him, okay? The message of Hebrews is very appropriate for today. Turn your eyes to Christ. He is your hope. 
Hold on to him. Don't live in fear. Don't live in despair. When anything happens you don't like, as it conceivably, I don't know, could, hold on to Christ. He has this world in his hands. And live like that, please. Joyful endurance for the cause of Christ is the great privilege of the child of God. So let's act like it this week, okay? In what we say to others, in what we post on our Facebook and other social media, let's live and act and speak like Jesus-loving believers, okay? I would love to pray for us that God will make it so. Would you stand with me as we do that? Our Father, uh, how we thank you for this warning text, a call to faith in Christ. And our Father, it is my prayer that any who would be in the sound of my voice, either in this room or uh, listening at another time and a place, any who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, that they do it not only soon, but now, right now. The, the, the heart response that says, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior from sin right now. Our Father, I pray that you would, would draw that response from the heart of any who are sitting, standing right now thinking about it. Our Father, that is your work to do. We ask it of you. It is Christ is lifted up, indeed, that you would draw people to yourself. So do it. So do it. I pray for encouragement for your people, each of us this week. Keep us from despair. Keep us from living or speaking in a way that would not be true to the gospel. Keep us sleeping well and living in hope, placing our hope in the living God. So, Father, we we pray for that this week. Protect this church family uh, from drift. Protect us from getting sidetracked and hijacked by other things that are not the gospel, however important they may or may not be. Christ, Christ alone. I thank you for these folks. Encourage us this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.